Welcome to Raising the Bar. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Today is going to be a very informative episode. Um, It's largely centers around something that recently happened in D.C., Uh, but before we get into the topic, I definitely want to say Happy New Year to everyone. I hope your new year is starting out right. Uh, Mine is actually Mine's starting out on a good note. Um, I've been with my family in Dallas for a number of days, um, just chilling and um, spending time with family. My, my son has been spending time with, you know, his grandparents. So it's definitely been good. Anytime you can spend time with family and stay in your pajamas for like two, three days on end. But um, I'm leaving soon, so I'll have to get back to the real world. Uh, but yeah, let's do the the normal podcast, www. The website is www.rtbpodcast.com. There you can find um, all of the episodes. You can find the links to where you can get episodes. You can see our bar raising memos in which we talk about things outside of maybe what's on what we talk about on the, ep- the podcast episodes. Uh, You can get a t-shirt. I still have some of those remaining. So definitely check us out, www.rtbpodcast.com. Today we'll be discussing, um, it recently started because D.C., the District of Columbia, um, the D.C. Council decided to decriminalize fare evasion. And what that means is, you know, people who were not paying um, to get to use public transportation in D.C., they were, you know, walking away with misdemeanor cases, misdemeanor charges. Well, now it's no longer a criminal act, a, a criminal act in D.C. And um, that once I heard that, which I definitely applaud that. But once I heard that, I remember, as you all know, I'm from New York and, you know, it used to be jumping the turnstile is what we, what we call it in New York. Um, that used to be criminal as well, and it's no longer criminal, I believe, in Manhattan. I'm not sure if the rest of the the, the, the boroughs, bureaus, the boroughs follow suit, but they also decriminalize it in Manhattan. But when I started to think about uh, just fear evasion in general, it made me think of the larger theory of policing that actually um, was the reason why many cities started to criminalize um fair evasion and that's called the broken windows theory um of policing so we're going to talk about that today but before we do i wanted to get into the affirmation so the affirmation actually comes from michelle obama um my stepmom recently went to her book tour stop in dallas and she brought me a journal it's called becoming me of course the book is called it's called becoming um i'm probably one of the only black women i know that um hasn't either um, read or listened to the book, but I do plan on doing that. Um, in the journal, it's, it's mainly a journal of blank pages, and I'm sure it's probably, you know, to take notes while you're reading the book. But there, they have um, quotes in here sparingly, and there's one quote that spoke to me, and it says, there's power in allowing yourself to be known and heard, in owning your unique story, in using your authentic voice. And there's grace in being willing to know and hear others. And this spoke to me for many reasons. I think one, I've I've struggled with owning my story, owning who I am, owning my identity, acknowledging that it is 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 authentic. One thing I am, and one thing I do try to be is authentic, but it's mine. 
Um, I think as we grow older, I think one of the major life lessons that we can learn is knowing who we are and um, not dimming our light for people who think we shine too bright, Um, owning who we are, and being authentic. Because I think the more that you know yourself, the more that you can remain true to who you are despite changing circumstances, changing environments, changing people, um, despite all of that. And that's one of the things that I'm learning now. You know, I, I started this podcast at a very low point in my life. Um, and the reason why I started it is because I wanted to, I, instead of focusing on what was going wrong in my life, I wanted to focus on, on something that was going right. And I wanted to focus on something that brought me joy. That was one of the things in all of the books that I read about, you know, the law of attraction and raising your vibration and all of energy was find something, focus on something that brings you joy. And so that was this. But uh, I will say just as I'm growing and as I'm learning about myself, one thing is that I'm acknowledging and allowing myself uh, to be known and heard. And I'm owning my story. My, my story is mine and mine alone. Um, it's difficult sometimes to uh, think about all of the things that I've been through, but I wouldn't be who I was. And it sounds so cliche, but it's true. And I think once we acknowledge and once we forgive ourselves, and we're going to talk about forgiveness and especially forgiving ourselves, but once we do that, there's a tremendous power in that in and of itself. So thank you for that. And I will, it's on my to-do list to read this book. But yeah, up next, we're going to get into just uh, Broken Windows Theory of Policing and uh, fear evasion. Um, I'm going to focus on D.C. and New York uh, because that seems to be the cities that I like to focus on. I don't know. I'm from New York. I live in D.C. Maybe that's why. Uh, but yeah, stay tuned. All right. So, yeah, before we begin into it, let's talk about a couple of things that I'm going to say. Fair evasion. And I want to define that really quickly. You know, fair evasion is when you use public transportation and you don't pay the fare. So I, because I'm from New York and we had turnstiles, we used to always call it jump in the turnstile. So you will hear me say either jump in the turnstile or evading the fare. I don't know whatever I'm feeling in the moment, but fare evasion seemed to be giving me some trouble while recording this. So that's why I'm letting you know, if I say jump in the turnstile, that just means that you didn't pay the fare. But recently, uh, the D.C. City Council, D.C. Council voted to decriminalize metro fare evasion. And what that means is before they passed this, um, before they decriminalized it, if you evaded the fare and D.C.'s metro system, you were arrested and charged with a crime. But um, recently, I think it was the beginning of December, they decided to decriminalize that. Um, And they considered this legislation for more than a year and a half. It took them a long time to do something they should have done or probably never should have done in the first place. But before the council voted, there was a great report by Washington Lawyers Committee that focused on the disparities in the enforcement of fair evasion. And I think a lot of the critique, a lot of the critique with fair evasion was that it just wasn't enforced um, equitably, equitably. <laughs> and it, you know, the application of the enforcement was the, largely the issue in a lot of cities, and we'll see that. 
New York City um, also recently, and I'll say Manhattan. I'm not sure of the other, borough, other boroughs. I think Brooklyn was actually looking looking into it as well. But New York City, um, and when I say Manhattan, I need to stop. I'm from Manhattan, so of course I think that's only New York City is the only borough. Manhattan is the only borough that matters. But um, Manhattan decided not to prosecute most people arrested over fare evasion as well. Um, and arrests for fare evasion were, were down dramatically in the recent years, according to MTA. And so in New York City, um, about 4% of all subway, ri- subway riders during a given quarter um, jumps the turnstile or evades the fare. And, you know, I am a firm believer that this is due to just the cost of the metro in New York or the, the subway in New York. Um, some New Yorkers can't afford to pay the rising fares. Um, it seems to go up every other year um, when, you know, the service is terrible in New York and D.C., um, and right now, the police can give anyone not paying the fare a civil summons that can carry a $100 fine. Now, I will say in the past, you know, in New York, on average, one of every four NYPD arrests were for jumping the turnstile or fare evasion, which is ridiculous. Um, there was a time in which the city would spend $50 million to arrest prosecute and issue summonses to low-income fair beaters. And that's an enormous amount of resources, which could be used for other things, like maybe subsidizing the amount, the cost of the fare. I know in New York, and I looked up the prices, so in New York, the uh, monthly cost for, so for a seven-day pass is $32, and for a 30-day pass is $121. And D.C. is even more. So in D.C., because they do it a little different, D.C., is not a flat rate, but in DC, your daily cost, your daily cost for riding the Metro can range from $3.70 to $12, which means it could be a monthly cost between $74 and $240. So it's definitely a lot of money. So what's the problem? Why, why shouldn't, uh, jurisdictions criminalize fare evasion? Well, one, as I alluded to in the beginning, it's not administered fairly. You know, WMATA and WMATA's in D.C., WMATA's own data clearly shows that MPD, Metro Police, are enforcing the statute almost exclusively amongst black people, particularly in black neighborhoods or parts of the city in which black people come in contact with white people. That's just it. So that's a major problem with, um, you know, fair evasion. And they've seen that in both New York and D.C., and, and frankly, people should not end up with a criminal record for skipping out on a $2 fare. Like, in no universe is that okay. You know what I mean? And keep in mind, once you're arrested and you're convicted of even a misdemeanor, that has lifelong consequences. It can, li- it can limit your employment opportunities, your housing opportunities, and your educational opportunities. And so instead of making public transportation more affordable, right, and using that $50 million that, say, New York City would use to prosecute these people, you know, we do the opposite. And, you know what I mean, we arrest and lock people up. Because once they're in the system, that's a never-ending cycle in and of itself. And, you know, we talked about the, um, the amount and just the rising cost of transportation. Um, and I think that the money used to prosecute people could actually be used to subsidize the system. So where did all of this come from? Where did this idea of taking something as simple as jumping or turnstile and arresting people for it, right? And, and mind you, enforcing it, you know, incorrectly or enforcing it um, 
not fit like unfairly where did that come from this actually came from <laughs> two white men <laughs> getting together to say hey you know uh there's this theory that I want to write about and the theory so the two white men who started it um is actually named George Kelling and James Wilson they wrote an article in the Atlantic entitled broken windows in 1982 and the theory basically states that if police will focus on disorder, right, in neighborhoods, that you focus on the small crimes and they won't turn into the bigger crimes, right? And so the style of policing, so once it was written about in 1982 by George Cullen and James Wilson, New York City kind of spearheaded um, enforcing it or applying the theory um, in real life, right? And at the time in which New York City did this, this was in the 90s, and the mayor was good old Giuliani, and the commissioner was Bratton. And um, Bratton was actually NYPD commissioner in two different stints. And in his stints, in his two different stints as um, NYPD commissioner, Bratton tripled the rates of misdemeanor arrests in New York City, right? So in New York, which was the largest city to implement this practice, between 2010 and 2015, police police issued 1.8 million quality of life summonses. And largely that's what the theory said. The theory said if we focus on disorderly conduct, fear evasion, public drunkenness, that if we focus on those things, that 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 would reduce violent crime and the big things. And so New York started to issue these quality of life summonses. And these were issues or for offenses like disorderly conduct, public urination, drinking, or possessing small amounts of marijuana. We're not going to talk about <laughs> how the tide is changing for marijuana. That is an entirely separate episode that pisses me off in addition to opioid epidemic. But that's what New York was doing, Right. And so Kellen and Wilson, in this article, they believe that disorder and crime were, you know, linked. And if a window is broken and left unrepaired, all the rest of windows will soon be broken. And they felt this was true for nice and rundown neighborhoods. And they felt that one unrepaired broken window is a signal that no one cares. And so breaking another window costs nothing. And it's fun. I think I remember reading that. Um, And the theory basically states you know, the best way to counter surging crime levels is to create order in public spaces. And if a community tolerates, you know, all of these small offenses like vandalism and public urination and criminals, you know, criminals will feel emboldened to commit more serious crimes like robbery and murder. <laughs> I wish I could see my face right now, but I'm going to get through it because I'm, I'm going to talk about the critiques, but now let me get through it. Um, and they also believe that decriminalizing this behavior, right, and, 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 and the theory that no one is harmed by this behavior is a mistake. And the article specifically mentions, you know, drunks and mentally ill, but, but, but it's funny that the article doesn't address combating, you know, the root causes of it, right, the addiction, the, 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 the homelessness, the economic issues like the article doesn't talk about that and it, and actually talks about it gets into um that you know we should train the police you know uh, train the bias away one of the things they talk about they do talk about so they do foresee 
I will say this, they do foresee that there would be problems with the applying this theory, right? They talk about equity and ensuring that age or skin color will not become the basis for distinguishing the undesirable from the desirable. And that's exactly what happened. And their response was to train the buyers away. Good luck with that. Um, so critics, critics say the theory was misinterpreted to support intrusive policing measures. And that's what it was. Because frankly, in order to, like in New York, you know, in order to give out 1.8 million quality of life summonses, that those neighborhoods were occupied. Those neighborhoods were, were subject to intrusive policing measures, right? Um, many say, now... One thing that Bratton will say and probably Giuliani will say is that broken windows led to decreased crime, decreased crime, right? And I will say that from all of the research that I've read that that's not the case. And the reason why is, yes, New York City did go from 2,400 homicides in one year to less than 400 in mid-2010. And Giuliani and Bratton want you to believe that, you know, broken windows was the reason why. However, there was a nationwide decrease in crime during that same time. And you saw a decrease in crime even in cities that did not um, employ the broken windows theory. And so there are many reasons why people say crime decreased during that area. And one of it is because of, you know, baby boomer generation aged. Um, there was mass incarceration and the economy was doing better at the time. And so I think there, you know, there are many different issues with broken theories and I, I mean the broken windows theory. And one of the things, one of the critiques that, you know, I, I kept thinking about was disorder is so subjective, right? Disorder looks different to everybody. Um, definitions about what order, what's orderly or disorderly, um, that can be racially loaded, as we've seen, culturally loaded, politically loaded, right? And, and we know in a lot of these cities, the officers are not from the neighborhood. And so if you bring in an actor that's not from the neighborhood, um, you know, that, that's just a recipe for disaster, as we've seen. And so when you think about fair evasion, think about the broader, like, what is going on? Let's take a step back um, and think about the broader issue um, when we talk about just locking people up for these minor crimes and getting them introduced, because frankly, especially in D.C. and New York, many of these people, many of the people that are arrested for evading the fair are teenagers. And we're getting them early, involved in the system over something that they should not be, it should not be criminal act to begin with. And then we're starting that cycle, because once you're in the system, you know what I mean? I think state actors, we've seen um, their incentives to keeping you in the system, right? Um, so up next, we're going to talk about how can we raise the bar and what cities can do. Um, there are ways in which we can address crime um, that don't involve, uh, what is it? What do they call it? I'm gonna, I want to say it right. Issuing quality of life summonses and doesn't involve um occupying neighborhoods and using intrusive policing measures. Up next. So I think uh, violent crime in the black community has been a lot. We've talked about it <laughs> at length, right? In many different aspects of it. And I think that for whatever reason, 
there's like this prevailing issue or prevailing thought, not issue, but thought that black people don't care about crime. And I, that couldn't be further from the truth. I think we care about crime. I think what we realize, and maybe not everyone realizes, because I will say this, many, you know, many um, of the, you know, tough on crime advocates in the 90s and early 2000s were black politicians. They felt like that was the way they saw their communities, you know, violent crime was increasing at one point and they felt like, well, let's lock them up. And Clinton and all of these black people decided to lock up these people, like decided to enhance sentencing crimes and decided to do all of these things, right, in which you saw the prison population double, right, triple. We saw the increase beyond our wildest imagination, you know what I mean? And crime was still happening, right? And for whatever reason, we pick and choose how we want to deal with crime based on who is actually committing the crime. And I'm not going to say for whatever reason. I know the reason, right? Institutional racism, but whatever. I'll continue to say for whatever reason. And so what I mean by that is we've seen in certain jurisdictions a public, a health, a public health approach to crime, right? In D.C. alone, there's a NEAR Act, something called the NEAR Act, that strongly emphasizes a public health approach to violent prevention and intervention. And what it does, and what I mean by public health approach, is it seeks to address the underlying causes of violent crime rather than focusing on the symptoms of violent crime. And a symptom of violence is the violent act, right? And, you know, this approach is consistent with national and international best practices. It's been advocated by World Health Organization, by CDC. Well, CDC is no longer able to really talk about this right now. Um, but what it talks about is it helps to develop safe and nurturing relationships between children and their care caregivers and provide victims of violent crime with immediate care and support. And, you know, and I think one of the main, I think one of the stark contrasts that we can see, right, is just the response to the, the drug addiction, response to the war on drugs from the 80s and 90s, and that was mainly a criminal justice approach. And I don't think that worked, y'all. And then we see this approach, approach to the recent opioid epidemic in middle America, middle and rural America, and that's largely a public health approach, right? Where we've seen, you know, people with um, the pens and um, naloxone pens, um, I may say, be, I may be saying that wrong, but you know what I'm saying. The pens in which, you know, a lot of um, teachers and police officers and all of these people are carrying around these pens and, and they're helping, they're saving people's lives. And I'm not saying anything is wrong with it, but what I'm saying is that wasn't the approach to black people, um, even, even in the 70s with heroin, right? That's an opioid. That wasn't that approach. And so what I think what we need to start demanding is one that we deserve, black people deserve, you know what I mean, the public health approach. And it, it sounds so weird, right, um, to say that we deserve for our addictions to be treated and not to be locked up. That sounds so commonsensical. However, I doubt that it happens. Um, yeah, th so that's, I wanted to just lay that tidbit um, and... I'll continue to uh, focus on, I think I want to do an, a podcast episode just on the stark contrast and the uh, 
reaction to opioid epidemics, or just drug epidemics in this country. Um, it still gets me riled up, so I may take a while to do that podcast. But yeah, um, so definitely. So keep keep an eye out for other, I think, applications of the broken windows theory. It's not just fair evasion. Uh, it's many different ways in which police departments try to employ this theory. Um, and definitely call it out if you see it. Call your DC council, not DC council, but call your, you know, your local representatives and call it out if you see it because it does not work, right? More police, more tickets, more people in the system does not prevent crime. And I don't, I don't quite know what it's going to take to get them to realize that, but it does not work. Um, so until next time, www.rtbpodcast.com. I am Iman, your host. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook, One RTB Podcast. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. Stay blessed.